be reading this morning from Genesis chapters 4 and 5. If you are able, please remain, remain standing, but it is a longer passage, so if you need to sit, I understand. Genesis chapters 4 and 5, hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do, do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erid, and Erid begot Mahujiel, and Mahujiel begot Methushiel, and Methushiel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jebal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call in the name of the Lord. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them, and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived one hundred and thirty years, and begot a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were eight hundred years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. 
Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahaliel. And after he begot Mahaliel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahaliel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahaliel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This is the book of the generation of the genealogy of Adam. That's how chapter five begins. But it could serve as an introduction to both chapters four and five. Uh, there is great significance in these words. Flip a few pages over with me to chapter ten. Of Genesis, and notice the difference in the wording uh, between chapter 10, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. Now, look back at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. The standard introduction to a genealogy in the Old Testament is found there in chapter 10. This is the genealogy of. But in chapter 5, there's a difference. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. This isn't just a genealogy. This is the record of it. This is the official record. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. The only other place in Scripture where that exact phrase is used is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why would that be? These scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is not accidental. This is intentional. It's specific. 
I've spoken some in the past couple weeks about the covenant of works and the promise of the covenant of grace or the new covenant. And last week, particularly, we looked at the idea of Adam as the federal head of humanity under the covenant of works. On the New Testament, we see a very strong emphasis on the idea of being in Christ. That that is the doctrine that we know as union with Christ. Being in Christ or united to him is a very important concept for the Christian life. And scriptures make clear to us that all men are either in Christ or in Adam. So let me quote again from our particular Baptist forefather, Nehemiah Cox, who writes this. In this transaction of God with Adam, he's talking about the covenant of works, he is not to be considered in a private capacity or as one concerned for himself alone. Rather, God treated him as the common root and representative of all mankind who were to spring from him according to the ordinary course of nature and were then reckoned to be in him, both as a natural and federal root. Therefore, in his standing, all mankind stood, and in his fall, they all sinned and fell in him. For by the disobedience of many were made for by the disobedience of one, many were made sinners, Romans 5.19. And then Cox continues, And in this respect, he is said to be the type or the figure of him that was to come. And Christ is the antitype. Because as Adam's sin is imputed to all that were in him, and so judgment to condemnation comes on all that were represented by him, so also the obedience of Christ is imputed to all that are in him. And the, tr- the free gift redounds to them, to the justification of life by virtue of their union to and communion with Christ. So we see this idea of being in someone in this sense uh, made explicit for us in the book of Hebrews, uh, referencing uh, the, the instance, which we'll get to in a few weeks in Genesis, where Abraham Uh, encounters this priest of God known as Melchizedek in chapter 14, and Abraham uh, pays tithes to Melchizedek. And Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Abraham pays loins to Melchizedek, and that is all the same as if Levi and the entire Levitical priesthood had paid those tithes because they were in Abraham. Adam sinned and fell, and that is all the same as if every human being born after him by ordinary course of nature had sinned and fallen because we were in Adam. In the same way, Christ kept the law perfectly, perfect righteousness. And that is all the same as if everyone who is in Christ by faith had kept the law perfectly. Our confession says this in chapter 6, paragraph 3. They, speaking of Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. 
Similarly, the righteousness of Christ is imputed, that is, it is counted as our rightful possession to those who are in him by faith. So the point is that you are either in Adam by ordinary generation, by natural birth, or you are in Christ by supernatural generation, by the new birth, by faith, which is the gift of God to us. So you are either in Adam and you bear his guilt and his condemnation, or you are in Christ and you possess his perfect righteousness. This is as important as it gets. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about whether or not you are saved or condemned in the eyes of God. And right here, near the beginning of Genesis, we are told that the whole Old Testament, I would suggest to you, is the book of the genealogy of those who are in Adam. It is the record of those who are descended from him by ordinary generation. But the New Testament is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It is the record of the establishment of a new humanity, supernaturally born from above, united to a new head who is Christ. Now that doesn't mean that everyone in the Old Testament was in Adam and died and went to hell. That's not what it means. They were saved by faith in the promises of the new covenant, the shadows of the Christ that were revealed to them here in the Old Testament. So here's how our confession puts it in chapter 8, paragraph 6. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue efficacy and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, how in and by those promises, types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the confession is saying that these things, even here in chapter 3 of Genesis and the, the curse that is pronounced, but there's a promise of the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head, that is revealing Christ. And it was faith, belief in those promises by which Old Testament saints were saved. So that's what Genesis is doing. It is showing us what happens to Adam's offspring, but it is also showing us the path to the Messiah. is showing us the promises. It is revealing Christ to us successively as it goes along. And so at the end of chapter 3, we left uh, the history of mankind in a rather sad place. Adam and Eve had been driven out of God's garden temple, out of paradise, to go make their way in the world. The path to the tree of life had been closed to them. It's not possible for them to keep the covenant of works at this point. They have no access to it. But they had been given a promise, a promise that one of their sons would crush the head of the serpent who had lied to them, deceived them, tempted them into rebelling against God. And ultimately, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, that he had taken them captive to do his will. So chapter 4 now opens with what should be a happy occasion, the birth of two sons, Cain and Abel. 
but we quickly see the ongoing ramifications of Adam's sin. His sons are, are bringing offerings to the Lord, sacrifices to atone for their own sins, which is bad enough that they must do that. But they each bring a different kind of offering. Cain brings some of his crops, we're told, in verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, it says in verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So Abel's offering is then accepted by God, but Cain's is not. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. What was the difference between these two offerings? Why would God accept one and not the other? Well, Hebrews tells us, that it was by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So we're told that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And we know that Scripture says whatever is not from faith is sin. Scripture also says that without faith it is impossible to please God. What's more, we also know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So this means that, that Adam had learned from God concerning appropriate sacrifices. God had slain animals in order to make coverings for Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 3. Adam had then instructed his children in what was acceptable to God and what was not. Abel had faith in the promise of God, in the word of God concerning the blood of a sacrifice as the only appropriate way for a sinful human to approach a holy God. The implication here is that Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith, but perhaps with a sense of self-righteousness, self-accomplishment. He had toiled by the sweat of his face according to the words of the curse in chapter 3, to coax the earth into yielding a harvest. And so he brought it, confident in his own works, rather than resting in faith and in the promises of God. We're also told that Abel's offering was a more excellent sacrifice than Cain's. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, a blood sacrifice. Cain did not bring a blood sacrifice Notice that they both offer their offering to the Lord. They, they bring it to the Lord, indicating, as some commentators suggest, that uh, there was a specific location, perhaps, where they worshipped the Lord, probably located near the east of the garden where the access to the tree of life was blocked. Perhaps Adam and Eve had erected an altar there, and so they bring their offerings there to offer them. We know from the rest of the Old Testament that the temple contained the Ark of the Covenant, and God spoke to Moses and said, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the Ark of the Testimony. At the end of chapter 3, God had placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And so it is possible, as most commentators suggest, that it was there at the east end of the garden, from between the cherubim, that God met with people. And so Benjamin Keach writes, 
Sometimes the face of God is put for the place where God reveals himself and where the ministry of the word flourishes. Thus, Cain is said to go forth from the face of God in verse 14 and 16. That is, from the place where his parents worshipped. And so Cain and Abel both bring their offerings to the Lord in this location. And Abel approaches his creator through the blood of a sacrifice, not through his own works. And so even here we see that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Abel's sacrifice is more excellent because it's the proper type of sacrifice. It's a humble sacrifice. He approaches God with a full acknowledgement of his sin and of the need for a substitute to die in his place. And Hebrews says that this showed that Abel was righteous. But Cain was not. And he didn't react well to his offering being rejected. It says at the end of verse 5 that God had not respected Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So Cain is angry. He's angry with God for not abiding by Cain's standards. Our culture kind of reminds me of Cain a little bit. Insist that we are the arbiters of right and wrong and that God needs to abide by our standards. But God is having none of this. And so he comes to Cain and he, he speaks to him, which is utterly amazing to me. Cain is unrighteous. In fact, he thinks that he's self-righteous. He brings an offering that he knows is not the one he's supposed to bring in his pride. He's angry with God for not seeing that this should be acceptable to you. Look how hard I worked for it. And yet God, in the spite of Cain's anger, speaks to Cain and, and gently He says in verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which indicates Cain knew what doing well was. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. So God condescends to speak to Cain, gently so, to reprove him of bringing the wrong kind of offering. And Cain knows the difference between an acceptable offering and an unacceptable one. He's been instructed in this probably by Adam, his father. God warns him that sin is waiting to destroy you. And then sin bears the fruit of death in verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Brother murders brother. Another violation of the law of the covenant written on the heart of all men. But Cain gave in to his sin, his hatred towards his younger brother, who he probably felt had one-upped him a little bit here at the altar. Perhaps he was even concerned that, that Abel would surpass him and inherit the blessing of the firstborn. And so Cain acts in jealousy and hatred and anger, and he murders his brother. Adam's sin has now had terrible consequences, and it didn't take long. This is the second generation of humans, and they're killing one another. And so we see here, in one sense, the fulfillment of the curse 
from chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. A righteous seed and an unrighteous seed at enmity with one another. Jude, in the New Testament, verses 8, begins to talk about those who reject authority. And in verse 11, he says that these have gone in the way of Cain. Cain, like his parents before him, has rejected the authority of God over him, thinking that he will be like God to determine what is the right and acceptable offering. He rejects God's authority, and he becomes a murderer. And so God, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he comes to Cain and he questions him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And again, Cain imitates his parents. He dodges the question with one of the most famous lines in Scripture, sadly, saying, am I my brother's keeper? But God tells him his sin is known. It can't be hidden from an almighty, holy, and omnipotent God. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. There may not have been any human witnesses to this murder, but the blood of the murdered brother cries out to its maker, demanding justice. And then, just as he did in chapter 3, God pronounces a curse on Cain in verses 11 and 12. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And then Cain complains of the severity of the curse. He killed his brother, and he complains that the ground isn't going to yield crops to him anymore. So the Lord sets a mark on Cain so that he won't be killed by the hands of other men, which is somewhat ironic since it was his hands that had committed the first such act of killing another man. So what are we to learn from this tragic story of the second generation of humanity in this tale of two brothers. Well, we can see that the curse is already taking its course in the lives of these two men, each representing a different class of people. Cain represents those who are unrighteous, who trust in their own works, who reject the authority of the Creator. Abel represents those who acknowledge their sin, approach the Lord humbly through the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice and obtain righteousness that is not their own. This points us unswervingly to Christ. All proper sacrifices in the Old Testament have Christ as their aim. He is the Lamb of the God, slain before the foundations of the world, substituted in the place of those who deserve death. But we may also see a relationship between Abel and Christ use the word a lot and talk about types and antitypes or typological relationships. A type is a person, a place, an institution, an event in history that prefigures or foreshadows something greater that is to come later, which is known as the antitype. The prefix anti means against or opposite. In this case, it is at the opposite end of the timeline. So the type happens first, the antitype happens much later at the other end of the timeline. 
Paul says in Romans 5.14 that Adam serves as a type of Christ, serving as the federal head of humanity. Adam prefigured Christ. Adam is called the son of God in several genealogies, but Christ is the true son of God. Adam was the federal head of humanity in covenant with God. Christ is the federal head of a new humanity in covenant with God. But where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. So the antitype is greater than the type. The New Testament uses this specific language of type at least 15 times uh, in reference to Old Testament figures and circumstances foreshadowing Christ. And it uses the concept many, many more times. One such use of this typological language is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. The Israelites, it says, come to Mount Sinai. And the scene is described here in, in Hebrews 12, the presence of the Lord on the mountain, the sound of the trumpet, the voice of God, the assembly of the congregation, and their fear in the presence of the Lord. That was the type. And then the anti-type, we're told. There's something greater that has come. The writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground, we're told in Genesis 4. But what did it cry? It cried out for justice. It cried out the guilt of Cain condemning him for his sin. That blood was a type, Hebrews tells us. But the blood of Christ shed in the new covenant, speaks greater things. Christ's blood cries out, it is finished. Christ's blood cries out that sin has been atoned for. Guilt has been taken away. Justice has been satisfied. Abel was a shepherd who offered an acceptable sacrifice, proved his righteousness by faith. Christ is the good shepherd who offered himself as a sacrifice, acceptable by God, well-pleasing in his sight. He was the righteous one in and of himself in whom we are to have faith. Abel was murdered by his brother. Christ was murdered on the cross by his brethren according to the flesh. In his book, Gleanings in Genesis, Arthur Pink says this, Abel is a striking type of Christ, and his murder by Cain is a remarkable foreshadowment of our Lord's rejection and crucifixion. At least 35 points of resemblance can be traced between the type and the anti-type. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 35 of those points this morning. But I encourage you to meditate further on this Seen between Cain and Abel and the sacrifice that Abel offers, his faith, his murder by his brother, and meditate on the sacrificial death of Christ, which is greater than Abel's death. The blood of Christ that is greater than Abel's blood that cries out that your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away, you are made righteous in him. 
but we must continue through the text. Genesis 4, verse 16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So once again, we see there was a location in the east of Eden where God's presence was to be found in a special way, and Cain leaves, and he goes out into the world. His descendants commit the first recorded polygamy and another murder. And then at the end of chapter 4, we're given this bit of hope in verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, who killed, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So God is gracious to Adam and Eve, giving them another son after the death of Abel. They name him Seth, certain that God has appointed him. That's what his name means, appointed. That God has appointed him as a replacement for the son that was slain. Seth likewise has a son, and we're told that men began to call on the name of the Lord. That is, they began to worship him. With Abel's death, only Cain's lineage had been left, an unrighteous people who did not worship God as they should have, who committed wicked acts. But Adam and Eve raised this new son in the fear of the Lord, and he, he and his children know of their creator, and they begin to worship him. What was lost when Abel died, a line of descent from Adam that would worship the creator is now restored. And so chapter 5 traces this line for us from Adam to Noah. So Cain and his descendants are to be wiped out in the coming flood, but Seth's descendants continue through Noah and his family. We're all descended then from the line of Seth. So there's hope. Hope that the promise is being fulfilled, that there is a righteous seed of the woman that continues. But at the same time, there's a note of sadness at the beginning of chapter 5. Notice the similarities and the contrasts found in verses 1 through 3. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created him, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. So Adam, we're told, was made in the likeness of God. But Adam sinned, and that image of the Creator was marred and defaced. Where previously there was the breath of life, now there is the stink of death. Where previously there was inherent righteousness, now there is a sin nature. Where before there was innocency, now there is guilt. Herman Bovink says that Reformed theologians continue to speak of the image of God in a broader and a narrower sense. In the Holy Scriptures, they read that man, on the one hand, is still called the image of God after the fall and should be respected as such. But on the other hand, he had nevertheless lost the primary content of the image of God, righteousness and holiness, and only regained these qualities in Christ So now man has become a sinner. And we're told in verse 3 that Adam begot a son in his own likeness, after his image. So even the righteous line of Seth that, that gives us hope is still found to be made in the image of Adam, born in sin and guilt, 
rather than in righteousness. If you'll remember from chapter 1, I mentioned a, a creation principle that things bear offspring, they bear fruit according to their kind. Thorns don't produce figs. Sinners don't produce sinless children. Genesis 5 verse 3 makes this clear. All those who are born to Adam are born in his image as sinners, guilty before a holy God. There are no innocent anywhere in the world. We are all the offspring of Adam through the line of Seth and then Noah. And we are all born in the image of our first father, born in sin, our very nature corrupt from the moment of conception. Where is the hope then? Well, it's found in Christ alone. Christ is the better appointed seed. Seth was the son of Adam appointed to replace murdered Abel. He's also the son of Adam. But Christ was the son of God appointed to replace Adam, who was called the son of God in multiple genealogies, including Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 of his gospel record. The promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and rescue us from the curse is not fulfilled in Seth. He's born in the image of his sinful father, Adam. But that promise, as we shall see, continues through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, through David, all through the Old Testament until we leave behind the book of the genealogy of Adam and come to the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we're told in Galatians, now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. And he does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one into your seed who is Christ. The same holds true for the first instance of that promise to Adam and Eve. The appointed seed is Christ. And as the genealogy is traced through chapter 5, there are a couple of striking features of the family tree. The first feature to notice is that the line of Adam is traced through Seth and not through Cain. In chapter 4, we have a brief glimpse of Cain's family, but chapter 5 goes to much greater length, tracing the line of the godly Seth, the thirdborn. The genealogy is tracing the line not of the birthright, but of the promise. And so it goes through Seth down to Noah. Second striking feature is the repetition of a pattern here in chapter 5. And we discussed the importance of repeated patterns when we examined chapter 1. Well, here we find a pattern that is repeated nine times in chapter 5 with only a couple of slight variations. That makes both the pattern and the exceptions important. The pattern is easy to see if we just read one paragraph from the genealogy. So we'll take verses 6 through 8 as an example. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he had begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So our pattern is this. The number of years lived before the named son, the number of years lived after the named son, then the phrase, and had sons and daughters who were not named. Then, so all the days of, and the man's name, were in the final age that he lived to. And then the phrase, and he died. One interesting feature of this pattern is the great ages to which these men lived. And there's no reason to take these ages 
at anything other than face value. They're not poetic. Uh, it's not a mistake. They're not months instead of years. That would be ridiculous. It would make Enoch 12 when his son is born. They're years. These men lived long lives. Now, this is before the flood, while the firmament of water still surrounds the earth above the sky, protecting the earth from the ultraviolet light and other harmful radiation. This is also very early in the history of humanity, before the the corruption of sin and the decay of death had induced too many errors into our DNA. The line was purer back then. The genes were good. There's only 10 generations from Adam to Noah. 10. And if you calculate the ages, you'll see that Noah was born in the year 1056. Barely a thousand years from creation. That's not a lot of time. 10 generations in a thousand years. So with the purity of the gene pool, the protective firmament in place, it's no surprise or medical mystery that these men lived such long lives. What should get our attention, though, is the final phrase of the pattern, and he died. Adam was still alive when Lamech, Noah's father, was born. Adam died 126 years before the birth of Noah. Imagine that. Surrounded by eight generations of his descendants, Adam, now an old man, dies of natural causes of old age. That's the first time. Yeah, there's been a couple of murders, but this is the first recorded instance in the scriptures of someone dying of old age. You have to wonder how that affected them. I mean, death was not a part of the original plan, but it was a result of sin. The threatened judgment for violating the law of God and the covenant. And so death came. And this time not at the hands of violent and evil men, but by the hand of God. I can't help but think this must have been profoundly meaningful for them. Over and over again, we read these words, and he died. But there is one notable exception to that pattern. There's one man whose death we do not read of. Verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Now, before we deal with the fact that the pattern is broken regarding death, let's deal with the pattern being broken by the addition of the phrase that is repeated twice concerning Enoch. Enoch walked with God. There are only two people in the whole of Scripture that are given that commendation. That might surprise you. Only two people in the entire Bible are said to have walked with God. And it's said twice about Enoch. The other one is Enoch's great-grandson, Noah. It's unlikely that it means that he walked with God physically as Adam had done in the garden. Enoch is still a son of Adam, begotten in his image, a sinful creature who could not look upon a thrice holy God and live. But what it means is that Enoch lived his life according to the word of God, that he followed the Lord's ways, 
and did not walk in the ways of the world. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Enoch was such a one. Indeed, Scripture asks us, can two walk together unless they be agreed? The answer is an obvious no. Enoch agreed with God. He followed the Lord's way, obeyed the law of God as it had been revealed to men at that time. We know that these were wicked times in which Enoch lived. Chapter 4 made a point of telling us the life of Lamech. He's the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. Lamech takes two wives. He kills a man. He epitomizes the evilness of the times. He's the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. Enoch is the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth. And he is the mirror opposite of Lamech. Lamech flaunts the law of God concerning marriage, the value of life, Enoch, we are told, walks with God, in agreement with God, and in obedience to him. The New Testament speaks of Enoch twice. Jude tells us that he was a prophet. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So not only did Enoch walk with God, counter to the culture that surrounded him, but he also spoke out against that culture, prophesying the coming judgment. And this judgment immediately may have been the flood, but the things that he says here, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. This sounds like the return of Christ being prophesied. So Enoch is prophesying to a, a sinful world of the coming of the promised seed. And because of his faithful obedience in this difficult calling, it is said of him in Hebrews that by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. I said there were only two men in all of Scripture that it is said they walked with God. There were only two men in all of Scripture that it is said they pleased God. But the New Testament tells us exactly what is meant here in Genesis 5 when it says that God took him means he was taken directly to heaven, bypassing death. There are various theories about why that would be so. We won't go into them this morning, but the thing to note is that this man, by faith, served God in such a way that it says he pleased God, and God took him so that he did not taste death. Like I said, there's only two people in all of Scripture that are said to have pleased God. The other one, besides Enoch, is Christ. In this way, Enoch once again serves as a type of Christ. Enoch walked with God in obedience to God's law and in agreement with God. Christ lived his earthly life in perfect submission to the will of the Father, in perfect obedience to the law of God, and in perfect union and agreement with the Father. Enoch preached and prophesied of coming judgment, 
when Christ would come with his saints. Christ himself preached and prophesied of this same event. Whole chapters of the Gospels are dedicated to his teaching on coming judgment. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. Christ also had this testimony. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Enoch, by the power of God, did not taste death, but was taken directly to glory. Christ, by the power of God, conquered death and then ascended to glory, victorious. Truly, Christ is the greater Enoch. So here in these two short chapters at the beginning of Genesis, the majority of which is taken up with genealogies, we have three types meant to direct our thoughts to Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Greek word here translated examples is the word typos. It's where we get our word type. It means a pattern, a sign, or an image, or an imprint. So you could think about old school printing. The printers had to set the type. They had to put all the little letters arranged correctly so that they would be coated with ink and then imprint that image onto the page. The letters are the type. The printed page was the goal. Abel, Seth, Enoch, they were the types. Christ is the goal. He is the focal point of all Scripture. Christ is the better Abel, the righteous son, the good shepherd who offered the sacrifice of himself to atone for the sins of all who would believe. Christ is the better Seth, the appointed seed, the second Adam who would undo the curse, crush the head of the serpent, and establish a new family, the church, united to him by faith and made righteous by the blood of the covenant. And Christ is the better Enoch, perfectly obedient, pleasing God, preaching the coming of the kingdom and conquering death. He is now seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. And as Enoch foretold, he will one day return in judgment on the world, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as you read and meditate on the history of man in the early chapters of Genesis, I encourage you to let these great men of the past do that which they would most want to do, which is to direct your thoughts and your affections to the one who is greater, to Christ, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, that men might call on the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.